Hello everyone uh, and welcome to Canada 2020's live stream on the hidden harms of COVID-19. I want to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Uh, my name is Nadine Youssef. I am the mental health reporter at the Toronto Star and I will be moderating today's event. Today uh, we're joined by three phenomenal guests. Uh, we have Dr. Vera Etches. She is the medical officer of health for Ottawa Public Health and, adjunct, and an adjunct professor uh, at the University of Ottawa. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Gail Beck. She is the clinical director of the Youth Psychiatry Program at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Centre. She also represents Eastern Ontario on the board of the Ontario Medical Association. And last but not least, we are joined by Dr. Vivek Gowell. Um, he is a professor in the Institute of Health Policy, Management and Evaluation at the Dalalana School of Public Health. He's also soon to be the seventh president and vice chancellor of the University of Waterloo. Um, thank you all of you uh, for, for joining us and, and welcome. Um, before we get started, I do want to remind the audience that we will be taking your questions. You can submit them via the Zoom Q&A function on the bottom right hand of your screen, and we will get through as many as possible in the later portion of the, of the program. Um, so, I mean, it's been nearly one year since the first case of COVID-19 was recorded in Canada. From death and disability to loss of employment and financial insecurity, the immediate impacts of the pandemic are now wildly known and, and understood. Um, however, there are some secondary effects of public health interventions aimed at stopping the spread of the virus that are causing some concern. And these unintended harms and their impact on the health and well-being of Canadians is the key focus of our discussion today. So we'll just get right into it. Um, you know, for the better part of a year now, our governments in close collaboration with, with public health departments have been issuing public health advice uh, and interventions to stop the spread of the virus. But we do know that some of these interventions have negative health effects, particularly with regards to mental health. And so I guess my first question is going to be for you, Dr. Vera Etches. Um, what are you sort of seeing on the ground um, in, in, you know, uh, in terms of the short and long-term adverse health effects of, of these public health interventions? Uh, the, the measures certainly contribute to social isolation and a lack of supports that people would normally turn to. Uh, we've seen that reported uh, for people uh, we support who use substances, uh, for people who are feeling challenged with their mental health. Uh, many people do not know where to turn, uh, we're finding. Um, we've, we've measured uh, certainly some things uh, through surveys uh, in terms of the financial stress people are reporting, and we can see um, you know, increases in the demand for uh, food as people lose employment and income. Um, it, you know, what's harder to measure is the impact uh, that this has, for example, on children and their development. Um, uh, we have seen some, some very disturbing uh, impacts that uh, are measurable because they show up in the emergency departments in terms of injuries for infants, uh, you know, double the rate of serious, uh, you know, fractures that we would, um, you know, usually see uh, in, in young children. Uh, so these adverse events in childhood can have lifelong impacts and on mental health and substance use. And uh, again, we, we can't measure that all immediately. We know this is uh, going to have some, some challenges for the future. Um, you know, in, in public health, we also usually deliver immunizations. So we are uh, behind on protecting youth against meningitis and hepatitis, um, human, uh, hepatitis B and human papillomavirus. Um, we also, uh, you know, there are other things that, that are uh, more anecdotal, but we see in our clinics the, the dentistry services that we would normally provide to low-income populations were on hold. Uh, so people uh, became, you know, underserved, you know, having to present to emergency departments with abscesses and worse uh, infections. And our dentists even say there's more fractures of teeth happening. They're seeing it stands out to them, you know, in terms of people under stress grinding their teeth. They're, so a lot of subtle things, um, you know, with this sedentary nature uh, of much of the activity, people not being as active on their way out to work or school and back and uh, the screen time increasing, you know, at a population level, um, you know, any uh, so, sort of 
uh, risk factors like uh, being more sedentary or weight gain, that those contribute to chronic disease uh, increasing at a population level. So there's all kinds of impacts that we aren't directly measuring like we measure the COVID numbers, um, but which are concerning, which we're working with partners to try to address uh, to the, you know, the best we can. Because we know that the COVID measures uh, are also important to maintain uh, a healthcare system that's functioning, uh, but we really need to to talk, to tackle COVID and no non-COVID harms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, Doctor Back. I know that you you work primarily with youth, so so what are you sort of seeing? Um, you know, if, for them, how how they're responding to this. I will say when I listen to Doctor Etches, it's very frightening because it's such a good list and such a, a list that includes many things that we're worried about. I guess I'm seeing both positive and negative things. And I'll start with the positive things and say that I'm really amazed at times by the resilience of the young people that we see. Uh, at this hospital, which is a tertiary care mental health center, we are seeing some impacts. We are seeing an increased rate of depression and anxiety. Um, and we're also seeing that people, young people are beginning to feel the isolation. Humans are social beings. And for children and youth, we know that a big part of their development is that they need to interact with each other and with their peers. That's how they develop normally. It's how they learn to solve problems. And many, of, many young people haven't had access to their friends in the way that they typically do. At the same time, in our youth program, which has a substantial group of people that we follow with the most serious illnesses, the most serious major depressive disorders, the anxiety disorders that keep people out of school, the early onset psychoses, we are not necessarily seeing as many of those youth as we typically would. And it makes us very worried that they are in their basements and in their bedrooms not coming to the attention of teachers and educators and maybe even their mom and dad the way they might have in the past. Because if you don't come out of your room for a few hours of your time, while well, somebody would have worried about that a year ago, right now, uh, when there's nowhere to go, you're, you know, your parents may not be as worried about that to the same degree, especially since you, you may be going online to school instead of actually getting out the door first thing in the morning. So we're more worried about that part of the iceberg that we don't see. The other thing is that for our population, a lot of the youth with those most serious difficulties, they are food insecure. They are housing insecure. So when you are running a face-to-face -face program for young people with first episode psychosis, we were preparing meals. We were assisting them in life skills. They often uh, came and we could get an idea of whether or not they had funds to uh, buy food or to pay their rent. And those are pieces that are not as easy for our social workers to coordinate right now. At the same time, because one of my, the programs that I work directly with is in a school and breakfast programs have changed considerably. In the sense that now everything has to be pre-wrapped. And so they can't get the same kind of breakfast that they used to be able to a year ago for reasons of safety. And they are getting, they are getting access to some meals and some food, but it is different and it may not be as healthy. Often the kind of, if you think about the prepackaged food you buy, many of us don't think that it's as healthy as freshly prepared meals. Right, right. Um, you know, it, it does seem like a, a broad swaths of the population are, are sort of impacted in different ways. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Goel, I guess my, my next question is, is for you. So, you know, what, what are you seeing in terms of what populations and communities are impacted more than others by lockdown and social isolation me measures? And what are some data that's available on, on this? Sure. Thanks for that. And uh, certainly to echo the points that have already been made. Essentially, everyone is affected uh, by a stay-at-home order. We all have to stay at home, but the impacts are differentially felt across different communities. Um, so maybe I'll just start by breaking down um, some of the groups uh, that I like to think about. First of all, there's the population 
that is able to successfully continue to do their work from home. And, and for many of those people, they're actually doing fine. And some people have even reported they're thriving. They're able to be more productive. We've got reports of academics reporting that they're more productive. They can do international collaborations without flying. They're all of a sudden realizing that there's all these great things that they're able to do. But we also know in that work from home population, there are other people that are challenged. Um, their work, it may be possible for them to do their work from home, but they have other responsibilities. And so we know there's been a real gender difference. And again, in the academic community, women academics uh, were less productive in 2020 than men academics were, as an example. Um, if you don't have good bandwidth, if you don't have the good tools, if you don't have a quiet place to work, you may not be able to complete your work as well, and your um, income and other things might suffer as a result. Um, then we have the population of essential workers, the people that have no choice but to continue to work. And, and they're the ones that enable those of us that are working from home to be able to continue to do so. Um, uh, people in the healthcare system, in long-term care, uh, in uh, first responders, utilities, and of course, the food supply chain. And I think it's really, uh, the last year has really uh, laid in front of us how many people are involved in getting food to our tables. Um, and many of those essential workers have no choice but to continue to work. Um, and, and the ones that are probably most impacted are tend to come from low-income populations. They tend to be uh, recent immigrants. They tend to come from different uh, types of marginalized communities. And, and the thing there is those individuals are actually affected by the disease. Like they continue to be exposed. And so they're suffering the consequences of the disease um, and probably increased as a result of the stay-at-home orders. Uh, and then the other group in terms of people that are employed are the ones who are not able to do their work from home and their work is not essential. And they're largely now out of work. Um, they may have some wage and income supports, uh, but we know that it's not um, going to replace their income. And even having those income supports, we know from some work that we've done uh, with some colleagues that there are shocks from being unemployed that have an impact on health. So I like to say that the economic impacts are also health impacts. Um, then we have people who weren't working. Um, and so if you think of seniors, uh, increased isolation, um, increased loneliness, that has impacts on health outcomes, uh, as well as mental health status. And then the final group I'll just touch on, and um, it's already been talked about in terms of students. Um, so we've talked a lot about the younger students. Um, you know, I'm at a university. We have post-secondary students who, many of them have really not been in class now for close to a year. Um, and it's fair to say the education experience has moved online uh, in terms of the learning. Um, classes and so on. It's not a perfect experience, but we all know that the most important aspects of university experience or post-secondary experience are outside of the classroom. It's meeting friends. It's uh, building those lifelong social networks that are going to support you. That's not happening to the same degree. So you start to go through each of these categories, and we spend an entire session on any single group, you can start to think of uh, the impacts that are taking place. And, and the key message I'll say is that the impacts are differential by socioeconomic status. And, and whether it's talking about the students, talking about the seniors, or people that are continuing to work, people in lower socioeconomic groups are going to have greater impacts. And the impacts are going to imp have uh, an uh, impact on their mental health, um, and their overall health. Maybe I'll stop there. Thank you. No, that was very, very comprehensive. Um, students, certainly, it's, it's a really big um, issue. I know like at Sick Kids in Toronto, um, you know, they've released two reports so far. Uh, this is obviously pertaining to younger, younger um, students, but, you know, two reports so far about uh, school disruptions and how that's been impacting um, 
students and how we need to sort of minimize them um, to the best of our ability. Um, and so, Dr. Beck, I kind of wanted to jump back to you. Um, you know, given given these school dis- disruptions, I, I wonder what what has been going on through your programming at the Royal Ottawa, and what has uh, what has it revealed over the course of the pandemic in terms of how how students are doing. And I do wonder if there's sort of enough support um, around, uh, you know. For, for these youth to access in, in case they were struggling? So I'm working directly in a school and where I am for this, for, and, and the program I work in is basically falls under the rubric of special education. And one of the things that the Ottawa Carleton Board and the Ottawa Carleton Catholic Board have, have done, have committed to doing, is that my program has been back in class for much more of the time than most high school students have been back in class. And I can't emphasize the benefit of that. I think that's been an important part. It's certainly for the young people we're seeing, it's an important part of their recovery. I think the main reason that you can do that, and I really want to stress that because that program is housed in an ordinary high school. And so even when those, teach, and when those teachers are on site, and the rest of the support staff, the dedication of teachers that I've been able to see firsthand to keeping schools safe, to keeping that environment safe. There, you know, the people who greet youth every day are so cheerful and so upbeat, and it must take a great deal of energy. And it's clear that they're committed to that task. And they recognize how important it is for the de- for people's development. By the same token, I use this example. So think about how hard it is to do something different. So most teachers and students have been learning online for large periods of time during the pandemic. And the best, and that's so different from what they typically do. And you'll hear some people talk about how they've had longer breaks. Well, they haven't had longer breaks. It's as if we, it's as if it's similar to, to driving a rental car. So, you know, when you get into a rental car after, and you're used to driving every day, it still takes more concentration and more effort to drive a rental car. And so it's as if teachers and students, when they're working online, are doing something that's very foreign to them. And, and every time something new comes up in what they have to teach, a teacher has to vary what they're doing and has to think about, well, how am I going to teach this effectively when I don't have a whiteboard? And a student has to think, I wonder what that looks like. So they're constantly adapting, and that's difficult. The other thing that's important about school is that you get used to the routines. And for people who are anxious, changing the routine, and especially when the routine has had to change and adapt a lot, for the various public health measures that come up and and people think they're necessary. I don't want to say that anybody thinks they're not necessary, but it still is a change in routine. And those changes in routine are very difficult. We know that they'd be very difficult for young children in particular, but they're difficult all the way up the line. And for any of us who've changed our routine, we know how much more effort it takes and it's more tiring. The other day, I was looking up the factors that lead to burnout. And if you look at the factors that lead to burnout, many of those factors are things that students and teachers and all of those supporting them have had to cope with in the last year. So it's important to remember that, I think, when when you think about how they're managing and performing. And so... That I think is uh, uh, is is noteworthy, and they may become tired and exasperated on time. But boy, I understand that, and I think anything we can do to support them and keep them safe is very important for you know for the development of our children and support the people who are directly working with them. Right. I was just going to jump in to say, you know, Ottawa Public Health did some population level surveys that we've repeated over time to see how people are coping in March and then in October. And uh, you mentioned burnout, Dr. Gale, that half of Ottawa residents reported concern over burnout in October. 
And, you know, in March during the, the you know, the strictest lockdown we had, it was about 37%. You know, so people are more tired and, uh, you know, that, that's, that's on average. And it's as Dr. Goel said, it's women, it's people with disabilities, people with lower incomes, where that's even higher. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that, Dr. Etches and, and Dr. Beck. I, you know, hearing about these high levels of burnout and, and how, you know, broad strokes of the population are sort of impacted. Um, Dr. Goel, I did want to ask um, you, you get your take on this. You know, have have policymakers considered the potential harms that arise from the public health interventions before they're implemented? Um, and if so, you know, how has that been done? Sure. And um I'm sure Dr. Etches will want to comment on this as well. So let me just start by um, pointing out that you know, we have a pandemic influenza plan for the country, um, and it's up on the federal government's website. It lays out a clear policy objective. First, and I'll read this, first, to minimize serious illness and overall deaths, and second, to minimize societal disruption among Canadians. Okay, so if you actually read the plan and then there's lots of text that follows, it's in terms of the health focus, it's on all causes, not just the infectious disease that you're dealing with in the pandemic, but all causes. And that there's a second element to it, minimize societal disruption. What I would say has happened in, in this country and in many parts of the world, but not everywhere, is that we have become focused on the first part of that first objective, minimizing serious illness. And actually, I would say it's not even that. We have become focused on COVID daily case counts, right? Every newscast, your newspaper focuses on the number of COVID cases. And we don't focus as much on the things that we're talking about. We're already seeing this in, in the Q and A's that people are saying that it's interesting to hear this. Um, we don't spend as much time talking about the consequences. So as much as I think policymakers have to take a greater consideration of these things, if you actually look at what public health leaders have been saying from the start, including Dr. Etches, including Dr. Tam, um, if you listen to their entire press conferences, they will always go through the consequences, but it doesn't get picked up as often. Um, and so as a result, I think our politicians who are responding to the public concerns have wound up much more focused on the minimization of COVID-19 cases. So I do think we need to have more conversations like we're having today. And we do need to think more about how we can have um, maximum control of the adverse consequences of COVID-19 while minimizing the societal disruption. And that is, for example, saying you gotta keep schools open because of the impact on children, right? And um, let's think about what we need to do to minimize the impact on the schools. Um, we need to find ways to keep as many workplaces open in a safe way. And, and so that means we need to think about things like uh, supporting people when they're sick or when they need to go into isolation. Um, sick benefits, it continues to be an item of major debate, but we still do not have appropriate um, sick benefit support for people that are in those essential sectors. They have to keep working. If they get exposed or if they get COVID-19 and they go need to go into isolation, they often lose their wages. And there is, I know there's a Canada benefit, but it can take time to get and it doesn't cover the replacement costs. So yet we spend more time on the daily news on the number, and I'm not saying this isn't important, I'm saying we should be a little bit more balanced. The number of people in ICUs, how many ventilators we have left, how many vaccines are coming in this week, 
we don't talk about how many people don't have insurance and weren't able to adequately isolate yesterday. So um, I'm going to maybe throw it back to you. And, and I know it's not just you and, and the media, because it's, it's really all of society that I think that has gotten itself into this focus on COVID case, cases and the medical aspects of the response. Right. Um, that's interesting. I, I do. I do think it's it's sort of a balancing act of you know people do worry about COVID nineteen cases, um, but at the same time uh, they they want um, you know there is the worry about these unintended harms that, that we've been talking about. I guess Dr. Etches, I did want to ask you sort of where does that balance lie? Um, how, do we, how do we strike it? Uh, you know, how do we know what to prioritize and, and and how has that sort of informed your decision making? So he has a few questions there. I mean, to begin with, uh, when we saw the possibility coming uh, that we would need to ask people to stay home, uh, we thought right away then, what are some of the unintended consequences? And again, children stood out. It stood out to us that we need to protect children who may not be safe at home. Um, so trying to mitigate uh, with partnerships uh, with the Children's Aid Society, even uh, the police service, um, looking at how do we bolster those supports to families and uh, identifying families that need more support. Um, that, you know, I think is one thing we can do as we continue to uh, become more aware and identify harms is to make sure that we're adding in additional supports while the measures are in place. The other thing is trying to make the measures as um, balanced as possible. So, so really looking at uh, the goal and trying to promote a shared understanding of the goal that we do want things open as much as possible while the, the hospitals can cope. And the hospitals have almost become that barometer. That's really where uh, the government is having to, to um, you know, pay attention in terms of if, if the number of people um, sick with COVID, but also the pressures on the system don't allow the operation of the healthcare system to handle heart disease and cancer and, and, and do that other essential work, then that is a clear and immediate harm. Um, we, we see it. It's always possible when COVID gets out of control that we have, uh, you know, ex extreme harm by, by that lack of, of a health system functioning. We can, we can see we can't go there. Um, but then knowing the other things, we, we have to keep building those supports. And uh, so thinking of the populations most affected, what, what do we do to reorient health services, make health services more uh, accessible? Um, the low-income uh, newcomer populations that Dr. Golal mentioned often don't have a primary care provider. So trying to use the opportunity of COVID and the interest in access to, say, COVID testing, um, you know, to, to actually bring other supports and, and to, to include uh, building awareness of the emergency social supports that exist. Um, you know, the, the city of Ottawa has stood up a human needs task force, and they are providing more food than they ever have, uh, working with the food banks and other networks. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's growing those supports uh, as needed is really key to get through this. Great. Um, the, other, the other element, maybe if I to think about in hospitals and in schools or at any one of those essential workplaces where you're looking after people, is that uh, in those settings, people also become ill. People also uh, need to take time off work. And so what we're seeing in those settings, uh, in this hospital and other hospitals, is that if a member of the nursing staff has to call in sick. We're not necessarily, we don't have the same bandwidth in terms of people to call in to replace them. And so often you're juggling this kind of thing. And we did hear that in particular from the long-term care setting, that especially in the homes with outbreaks, and especially at the time when, when um, it was, we realize it's probably not a good idea for essential workers to work in more than one home. Then we began to face shortages of healthcare workers and even just a shortage uh, of people like custodial staff in schools. If one of them becomes ill, because there's much more cleaning to do than there had been hitherto. 
So the support system around uh, healthcare, around education, around any of those essential services can be really affected when the people become ill. And it's really shown us how little give there is in the system at times. So thinking about that and making and making sure that the people who are left to look after the situation don't burn out even quicker because they're exhausted. Doing all of those things, it's a lot for it's a lot to think about, and it puts people under a lot of pressure. Great. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that, that sort of still stands out in my mind um, is something that Dr. Etch said, which is just, just the amount of people that are feeling burnout. And so I did want to ask, um, maybe maybe Dr. Goel, you would be, uh, uh, you know, equipped to answer this question. What what are we sort of, what's the the consequence of, of inaction um, here? And, and others, if you want to jump in as well, if we, if we don't sort of um, pay attention to these unintended harms, um, what are we risking, uh, you know, happen to our society beyond the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, so first of all, um, if we think about the children, and it's been referred to already, um, this is uh, early childhood development is actually the strongest predictor of lifelong health and social outcomes. And so um, we are affecting an entire generation. Um, Stats Can has already modeled that the university graduates from the, and, and college graduates from these years are going to have lower lifelong earnings because of the impact on their educational experience. So that's one example of, of the consequences. There's been a, a question in the chat about the deficits that are being incurred. We know that <laughs> those deficits are going to be a drag on our future economic development and growth, which will have health consequences. So it, it is clear that there's, and we could again go on and on with all the different uh, ways in which there'll be long-term consequences. I think it, again, what it really comes back to me, for me, is what should we be doing to minimize um, the uh, spread of disease so that we don't have to have lockdowns for as long as we do? And we don't have to have we shouldn't have had to have a second lockdown, and I really hope we won't have to have a third one. But I am worried that we might wind up in that situation, even though the trends right now are coming down. If we open up too soon without having all the right tools and resources in place, and before the vaccination programs really start to take root, we'll likely will have a third wave sometime um, later in the spring. And, and the reason is that, again, we haven't focused enough on the interventions that are necessary mm -hmm. to keep um, the disease at bay when we get to a control level. So if we think back to last summer, things were pretty good. Um, and the number of daily cases across uh, Canada were right down. Um, when we were in the lock, first lockdown, it was very clear the things that we needed to do and lots of papers and uh, articles published on it, building out testing capacity, building out contact tracing capacity and isolation supports for the people that need to be isolated. But we got to the start of the second wave in September and certainly here in Ontario, you'll remember as soon as the school, schools reopened, we had long lineups for testing. Um, we had health departments start to stop doing contact tracing because they didn't have enough capacity because the case counts just got too high. So we lost control of the situation and so we wind up with the wave. So if we again go back to the pandemic plan, the purpose of a lockdown is to help you prepare and avert the next lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly when we started without a vaccine. Now we have to just get ourselves through the stage where we get the vaccines rolled out. And this virus is, is not an easy one to deal with because it's now thrown the variants at us, right? And, and so we need to be even more prepared as we come out of this second wave to be ready to control the disease in terms of spreading. And, and we know what works, like we know the measures that work. So uh, again, 
the answers are there, but it will take political will, it'll take a lot of coordination in order to ensure that we, once we get um, out of the second wave, that we're able to mitigate the spread of disease and keep ourselves from getting back into the same situation. Great. Uh, Dr. Etches, I, I wanted to sort of ask, get your opinion on what do you think we can sort of do better, how governments and public health officials can make more evidence and form decisions that can improve them and protect the, the public health of, of all communities and sort of maybe prevent the, 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 the unintended consequences that we've seen from previous lockdowns? Uh, well, I, I would agree with Dr. Goel that it's important to control the disease. The more we control the disease and keep the levels as low as possible, it, you know, that, that helps all of the COVID and non-COVID harms be, be minimized um, as long as, it, you know, that control is in the context of things being open, the services people need. Um, it is challenging with this virus. The testing and contact tracing system is, is not likely to be sufficient on its own uh, because of the asymptomatic infection and the uh, disincentives to being tested. Uh, so, you know, all, all along, uh, we, we, we um, you know, can estimate that, that people presenting for testing uh, are only a fraction of the people that are living with the COVID virus, whether they know it or not. Um, so I think being able to, to address some of those barriers to testing actually mean looking at um, what, what are the, the negative consequences for people when they test positive, uh, you know, if they have to miss work, they don't have income. Um, and that's where, I, you know, I think uh, Dr. Gull referred to isolation support. Uh, so yes, you know, in, in Ottawa and other cities, they've stood up uh, isolation centers there's still barriers to that being a perfect solution because you might be a single parent and you can't, there's no one else to look after your children or, you know, you, you still have uh, other challenges to using an isolation center, but the, um, those kinds of things are important. So, so making sure that uh, there aren't those disincentives for actually identifying COVID and controlling it. Um, we, we can continue uh, to use technology to try to, uh, you know, assist with higher volumes of contact tracing when that's needed. Um, there's lots of tools. But when it comes to the non-COVID uh, infection harms, I, I think we need to make them more visible by actually reporting on them and measuring them. You know, the, I've talked about the surveys we've tried to do to highlight what's happening in these, these harms, um, the, the emergency room visits for children, but they're not they're not put side by side with the COVID infection numbers. They're not measured daily. And so it doesn't come forward like that curve on the graph. So I guess I, I think I take responsibility. You know, I, I, I run the, um, you know, the, the public health unit that, that creates a COVID dashboard. And, and, and we, we need to look at what is on that dashboard that speaks to these other harms in a way that's just as visible. Um, so, you know, that's something, you know, we'll continue to work on. Um, um, you know, but again, some of these things aren't going to be visible, you know, for many years, uh, unfortunately, too. So um, anyway, that's that's part of it. Again, I uh, appreciate the, the opportunity to highlight these things today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Dr. Beck, you know, what do you, what do you think we should we should be doing better, I guess, particularly when it comes to youth? But um, any other thoughts that you may have on this? In mental health but in all branches of medicine, but in mental health, the social determinants of health are critical. So many patients who suffer from mental illnesses are housing and food insecure. And I think it gets back to what Dr. Goel mentioned related to income supports. And as Dr. Etches said, isolation supports in circumstances so people don't have to feel that their families are at risk. The other thing is that we have to be conscious of the fact that the people who have been unwell, many of them are describing longer term impacts that may affect in fact their ability to uh, work for longer periods than just the period of acute illness. And so I think that we're going to have to look at those longer term impacts carefully because we know that having um, one of those long extended illnesses is going to have an impact on other aspects of life. 
Also, many people in Canada have lost a loved one to this illness. And many people in Canada are horrified at the way our elders have been treated. Uh, at, and at the fact that we, we went not just, had not just the first wave where, where the vast majority of the people who passed away were elderly and in long-term care facilities, but we now have a second wave facing the same thing. And I can tell you that even among the small sample of people that uh, we see in our program, uh, people talk about uh, losing a grandparent, or they ta also talk about worry that they're going to lose a grandparent, especially if they live in long-term care. And they and and we can't. Um, I think. We can't negate the impact of that grieving and the impact of those grieving because they've acquired a longer chronic illness because of having had COVID-19. The other thing is, I think we do need to support young people's education. Young people are worried about what's going to happen now that they're, you know, they haven't done high school the same way as they had before. And even if their marks are fairly good, they're not sure about what university is going to look like. We've seen pe more people taking a gap year to see if things don't get back to that normal university life that Dr. Gowell talked about at the beginning. So from this perspective, I think that the other thing that's important for people who do the work that Dr. Etches does and Dr. Gowell do, to remember, we won't even know what impacts we have to assess for a little while as we watch the impacts as they roll out and truly begin to study how important an impact was this. Uh, what inadvertent things came up as we were doing other studies that ended up being a much more important factor in the long run. So I think that, um, and I certainly, as, as someone who doesn't spend the amount of time in research or in observing public health data the way either Dr. Goel and Dr. Etches do, I'm grateful for that as a clinician, because we need to begin to be mindful of that, but we need to be sure we're really studying the impacts of this, because people at many levels are worried. Mm -hmm. That may be too general an answer, but there are lots of things to worry about, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as a mental health reporter, I think for me, it's when I see... Um, the impact that this is having on a lot of, you know, different different populations in our community. I, I wonder what people can do um, in terms of reaching out for help, you know, what's available available to them. And so um, I don't know if Dr. Etches, you have any thoughts about where people can sort of help um, if they are struggling. Absolutely. So when, when we think about mental health from a public health point of view, we think about it, first of all, to prevent um, or, or to promote mental well-being. So actually keeping ourselves resilient and, um, and, and, and that is so connected to our social connections and our social supports. And so finding other ways to stay connected with people is really important. Uh, virtual connections, even even texting someone regularly and doing quick little check-ins can actually make a huge difference. Um, we were talking just before this started, the importance of humor and, and being able to, to laugh and support each other. Um, you know, it makes a difference in people's coping. And, um, and then, yes, when people start to need more support beyond uh, their, their social network uh, to know where to turn. That's been something where we're always sorry to see that people don't know there are supports available. And so really making people aware your uh, local public health unit will probably have a resource page about the mental health supports available in your area. Um, the provincial government also you know, can point to there are actually online services now uh, that are new and accessible that never existed before and we are finding there's some good news here I mean well I don't want to call it good news <laughs> there's some evidence that people are new people are reaching out for help so it's it's unfortunate that people need that help but there there are services that are reaching new populations we can see that um, and so I, I think it's it's uh, you know uh, 
used to practice as a family physician, you know, the very, very basics, probably, sorry, Dr. Beck, you should probably say these things, but the very basics, uh, you know, of keeping your eyes out for if somebody's losing interest in something, if people are finding it hard to get up in the morning or people, uh, you know, seem to have difficulty looking into the future, you know, we need to be alert to that. We need to ask people how they're doing and, and link them to those services. One of the things that I wanted to mention, because it's been very powerful, and I've mentioned it, uh, I mentioned it well over a year ago, I'd say two years ago in an interview, when people were thinking about um, how to support their kids who'd gone off to university. And there's a lot of research that shows the value and the mental health benefit of getting a real, what I'll call real mail, so snail mail. And so when the pandemic began, uh, my daughter's best friend lives in the city. My daughter lives in Vancouver. So she was expecting a visit. My daughter couldn't come. And her friend has three little boys at home. And uh, I decided that I was going to send them letters because of this positive mental health benefit of letters. And, uh, and, And I started sending many more letters to different people. And it is shocking to me, just at a personal level, how excited people get to get a, you know, just a silly postcard in the mail. And I began to say to myself, when I go on trips, I buy these postcards that I never send. And now I've got like hundreds of postcards that I'm just sending out to people. So the other thing that we're doing that is that in our inpatient unit, we're also having people send out cards to family members and stuff like that because it feels good to do that and it feels apparently really good to get mail that isn't a bill or a flyer or something like that so it is to think about the kinds of things that really uh, help your mental health feel a little bit better and then to think of doing that for someone else if you feel that, that they're down because I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that we're all under stress right now Right? We all are feeling the stress of this and that we all need to do a little more self-care than normal. And any small thing we can do for the people that we care about, and even people who may not have been expecting it, may be much more welcome than it would have been before. Yeah, absolutely. And even, even the small things um, can go a long way in building resilience. And I think we sort of all need that um, to be able to get through this pandemic and, and beyond. Um, so I, I will move on to, we have, I think, 10, 15 minutes left. So I will move on to some of the Q&A questions that we have been getting. Um, one question uh, is about where educators can sort of learn um, best practice for reopening schools or, you know, having a, a safe classroom. I, I wonder, I, I don't know, Dr. Etches, if, if you have some thoughts on, on that, where can uh, sort of get these resources or educators in particular? Uh, certainly, and I, I, so I'm more aware now we're, we're speaking potentially to a national audience, but everywhere across uh, Canada, your local public health agency will have guidance for schools um, and will be working with your Ministry of Education to think about how do you uh, do infection prevention control in, in schools. And the, the principles are actually the same. I'm sure you would get similar advice. Um, you need to start with making sure that COVID doesn't come in. And that means screening for symptoms. Um, I've mentioned not everyone always knows if they have an asymptomatic infection, but it makes a difference to actively check and say, gee, is that sore throat something I should pay attention to? Yes, we're saying yes. Any mild symptom you might have ignored before, we need to pay attention to now and get tested for COVID if you have headache, a cough, you know, a, a sore throat, something different for you that could be COVID. Um, and so uh, parents need to screen their children every day. It's the first most important step. Then other levels of protection come from wearing masks. And, um, you know, there's debate around how young can children wear masks. But I can tell you, children are pretty good at learning new behaviors, especially in school. Um, so I think that we have seen that uh, effective, certainly down to, to grade one. Um, and, and then that frequent hand washing, uh, separating the children as much as possible. Um, we know that COVID will enter schools and then your public health response team is ready. Uh, if someone tests positive to follow up, to make sure there's no 
further transmission beyond the close contact. So we talk about cohorts and uh, that's the, the group uh, that students are part of. We're trying to minimize the, the number of contacts to those cohorts. The cohort goes home for isolating, for testing, and, and really that has been effective. Uh, we have not um, detected widespread transmission of COVID with, with these different layers of protection. Um, so I think that's the key. We are talking about trying to find the balance. So those are all measures that are balanced, that are worthwhile considering the benefits of having children in school. And, and then we want to extrapolate that to other settings. You know, can we get the, get the university students back and use some of these different levels of protection um, that, that bring, bring a, a balance to the approach? Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, we have another question. I, it's about um, studies and whether whether these studies are being done on um, to understand the adverse consequences of younger children in online learning. Um, so this person says, every parent I have spoken to with kids in grade four or lower are having huge challenges trying to manage the online learning with impacts on their children um, and their parents' efforts to work at home. And they're just <coughs> that, you know, a systemic proper study underway to, to understand the impact on the education outcomes um, that we expect for, for younger lo learners. Um, I don't know if, um, if Dr. Guell, you have some thoughts on this. Sure. So certainly uh, there is uh, lots of work underway in areas such as that. Uh, I know that I have colleagues at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education that have been looking at the impact to online. And I think the, you know, the questioner, in the second part is also getting, it's not just the impact on the children, but it's also the impact on the families and, and also, and, and what are the characteristics of different types of households? So I, I'm sure, uh, unfortunately, most of that type of research is not going to yield results in a timely enough manner to um, uh, support the current response, but it's going to be very important research to support our planning for the future. And similarly, I know there's uh, people looking at what's happening in different hotspot areas and in different communities um, to really ensure that our understanding of how what the consequences are of these different public health measures in different communities are better understood. I think we have to remember that going into last January, February, we had our experience for these types of measures was not you know, a hundred years old, right? The influenza pandemic and public health measures were imposed to a certain degree, but the world was a very different world. Technology that we're using now didn't exist. So we don't really have a lot of research base to inform the decisions that people in public health and governments have to make. Right, Dr. Beck. So this does come up uh, at times in other interviews I've done, and there are a couple of studies, especially on younger children. So if you think about it, if you are six years old and you've been involved in this for a year, that's about a, that's a sixth of your life. If you're four years old and in kindergarten, that's even more, that's a quarter of your life. And so there are some studies now coming out of Great Britain. And as well, if you look on the website for the uh, Centers for Disease Control, they're beginning to show impact on the development of some of the first um, academic type skills, reading, recognizing letters, early um, pre-math skills, what they think, I think they call them pre-math, pre-literacy skills. And the CDC has a couple of studies listed already. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult as a youth gets older to do those studies, but I'm under the impression that they are ongoing. But people interested in early development can find some early research there. If pre-literacy and pre-math are in fact affected, it's difficult to know what impact that, that will have longer term because still in kindergarten and preschool and early grades, it is felt that the main task for youth is uh, socialization. The main learning is socialization. And so, uh, and we know already that uh, youth develop at very different rates, their pre-literacy and pre-math skills. And it is, in fact, only at grade three that we begin to look for the more serious learning disabilities. So there's certainly catch-up time, and we know there's catch-up time for any of those basic academic skills. And, you know, schools and even 
parents and families in many respects do tend to worry about academic skills in much the same way as Dr. Guell was talking about how we're focused on disease numbers and hospitalizations and who's on a ventilator. But we're ignoring the biggest task, which is to learn to socialize and to learn to get along with other people and to problem solve together. And so it may be that in focusing on some of the academics, we're missing the data that could be available to us on some of those other tasks. Right. Interesting. Um, you know, both uh, of you sort of mentioned there is some you know work going on about this, but, uh, you know, when is the earliest thing? Like, how long do you think it will take for us to really truly understand and measure this impact? You know, will it be next year? Um, I'm just curious. I think I suspect and I'm interested in what Dr. Etches and Dr. Guell would say. I suspect that in marginalized populations, immigrant populations, populations of children and youth living in poverty, populations where there are already other stressors, I think that we will see some impacts sooner rather than later. I think otherwise we could be looking for impacts for a long time, but that's that's what the way we're positioning ourselves as clinicians based on the early things that we're seeing from these studies. And what I wanted to jump in to say is we're not waiting, right? We're not waiting. Like it, it, we exactly as Dr. Um, Beck has said, we can anticipate there will be inequities. So even if there's resiliency and even if children catch up and carry on and are going to be okay, um, there's a gap between those with advantage and those with less advantage. And so that can be addressed right away. We need to start working on that right away. And so that's partnership work. That's with, with uh, education, with um, community organizations that do after-school programming. And those conversations are already starting. And I'll just add, I agree that there's lots of data already starting to emerge. Dr. Etches referred to the report from Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario last week about the um, injuries in children. Um, there's increase in opioid deaths. Um, Toronto had its worst weekend ever last weekend. Um, StatsCan has done surveys on mental health at all ages. And so there's lots of immediate impacts being um, reported on. But there's going to be long-term consequences that will take time. And we can project what they're going to be, and we need to be thinking about that. Um, so as Dr. Beck is saying, you know, the development of children, the social interactions that they learn, and in school, in pl having playdates with other kids, um, learning facial expressions, particularly for the youngest children, even learning how to recognize faces if people are wearing masks, what's going to happen to babies um, as they're developing? Because their neuron networks are being laid right now. So those are going to be the lifelong consequences that we won't, might not see for decades. Well, I want to I want to thank you all um, for your comments. I I, I just want to know if, if any of you have any sort of closing remarks or any final thoughts you want to leave our audience with um, before we sort of wrap up this this program. Um, Dr. Beck, do you have anything to share? I certainly. Uh, first of all, I think it's important for people to remember that if they think they have mental health consequences, they can always reach out to their family doctors. The family doctors across this country are working hard and they're available and they're they're doing their best and they're there as a resource and to remember that. The other thing is that people really should follow uh, public health guidelines that Dr. Etches and her team are working so hard to set and uh, that uh, uh, it's good to know that people like Dr. Goel are working to make sure we have the information we need. So uh, that people should just stay well and stay safe. Absolutely. Dr. Richards, do you have any I want to thank uh, everyone for, for using the tools we have to keep COVID under control because the better controlled it is, the, the less we have to implement stricter measures and, and have these other harms. And just encourage everyone to continue to highlight uh, these harms that are less visible um, so that we do rally as a society uh, to make sure that we are supporting people most affected and um, you know, growing those supports where they need to be stronger. Dr. Gua? I just echo that uh, um, 
really thank Canada 2020 for facilitating this conversation. It's really important for us to have this. I do want to emphasize that when we get to the situations of exponential growth, like we had last winter, or we had in, in late fall, um, we don't, we're left with no choice but what we have had to do. And my point, I think we would all agree, it's unfortunate that we keep winding up in this situation. And as everyone has said, it is important that we follow the public health recommendations to get things back under control. So I'm certainly not advocating that we only focus on the consequences. We do have to protect ourselves from this disease, but we need to do a better job in making sure we get the right tools in place so that we don't keep getting ourselves back into the lockdown situation. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you all so much. You've certainly given us a lot to, to think about. And me as a reporter, I think um, there's certainly more work that we can do on, on highlighting these unintended um, COVID-19 harms. So that's certainly given me a lot to think about. Um, that is all the time that we have uh, uh, left for today. I just want to thank the audience as well for tuning in. Again, of course, our guests, uh, Dr. Vera Etches, Dr. Gail Beck, and Dr. B uh, Vivek Buell for taking the time to join us this afternoon. We really, really appreciate your participation. Um, I do want to let the audience know that the interview will be made available in podcast format in case you want to share it along. You can visit Canada2020.ca to learn more. Thank you again and goodbye. Stay safe and take care. <laughs>